reading from four different places in the New Testament. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the pro Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And going a little far farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Over the last four weeks, we've asked the question, how does the cross work? We've asked that question because the New Testament speaks of the effectiveness of the cross in many different ways. In fact, in so many different ways that it's hard to briefly summarize the significance of the cross. Now, on the one hand, that should not surprise us when we're talking about the infinite God sacrificing himself to redeem his creation out of love, to explore that is something that I suspect we will explore until Jesus comes back. And this is one of those topics that we have to explore looking at different passages of Scripture. We explore systematically. You can't get a picture of the atonement simply by going through one book. We have to drop down in different places and appreciate the different language, the different metaphors that New Testament authors use to describe the cross. The cross, essentially, might be understood in the notion of a mosaic. Boys and girls, if you're not familiar with that word, a mosaic is a picture that's made out of different colored tiles. And each tile is important, but only if you have all of the tiles in the right place can you understand the picture as a whole and appreciate the significance of the whole. And that's very much the case with the atonement or with the cross. It's only appreciated or understood when we have all of the tiles and respect all of them, understand all of them, and unite them together in sort of a common picture. So for the last four weeks, we've considered four different views of how the cross is effective. For bonus points, can you name the four views? I really won't put you on the spot, but in week number one, we talked about the victory of Christ. In week number two, we talked about the substitution of Christ. In week number three, we talked about the healing of Christ. And in week number four, we talked about Christ being our scapegoat. Today, we're going to briefly think about each of those again, remind ourselves of what we're referring to, and ask the question, why are they important? And at the end, we're going to ask, why do they need to be held in tension together, and what does that look like? 
So let's do just a bit of review and remind ourselves why these different aspects are important. First of all, the victory of Christ. What is this victory and why is it important? The victory of Christ was the first approach to the effectiveness of the cross in the early church and it dominated the church for the first 1,000 years of the church. It was one of the most important views for Martin Luther. It's basic notion that the cross is effective because in the cross, Jesus defeats Satan. We see this battle taking high priority throughout the Gospels. When Jesus heals people, he often casts out demons. Uh, When he begins his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. It culminates, ultimately, as Scripture tells us, in the defeat of Satan at the cross. The passage that we drew on to consider this notion is from Acts 2. It's the first sermon in the history of the church. And in it, Peter says, uh, quoting Psalm 110, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 looked forward and prophesied, of a special agent, a special servant that God would send who would be both king and prophet and who would defeat Israel's most significant enemies. And you fast forward to the first century, unquestionably Israel's most significant enemy is Satan and the principalities and powers. Israel can't be faithful because they are constantly thwarted by uh, the evil powers that exist and oppose them. Now, this raises the question why Does Jesus have to go head-to-head with Satan? Isn't Jesus God? Isn't Satan simply a created angel? Why this head-to-head? Well, if you were here, we talked about the notion that Adam and Eve were created as king and queen of creation. When they sinned, they abdicated that role, and that authority over this created order went to Satan. Believing in him, deciding to hold his words as holding truth rather than holding God's words as truth. We decided that he should be ruler. And this is why in the New Testament you come to Satan and he receives titles like prince of this world and prince of the power of the air. Those aren't titles that were ascribed to him at creation. It's authority that he receives as a result of our abdication, which is why Jesus must come and go head to head with Satan. And why not only must he go head to head with Satan, but in that process... This view highlights that in some capacity, a ransom was offered in the death of Jesus to win us from Satan. Most clearly, this is spelled out in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. It was C.S. Lewis's favorite motif in understanding what happened between Jesus and Satan. And comes to us in the early church from Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why is this view important? What significance does it have? Well, this view highlights that in the cross, Jesus has defeated our most powerful enemy. Is that important to you? Frankly, I think it's not that important to you because you don't tend to think about or really believe in the existence of the devil. In India, there's a particularly deadly snake. It's called the crate. 
And it lives in the smallest of places. It loves to be in very, uh, very confined uh, structures. It moves only in the darkest hours of night. Its fangs are hollow so that as it bites the sleeping victim, the victim often doesn't know that he or she has been bitten, brushes it off as a thorn in the blankets or a mosquito or some kind of insect. But the crate's venom will progressively paralyze you, beginning uh, with the lower extremities and working up through the body. It paralyzes ultimately the diaphragm, and uh, people who have bitten ultimately asphyxiate. The terrible thing about the crate bite is that while all of this is happening, to an outsider you appear to be dead, but you're completely conscious, which has led to a number of people being thrown into the pile of dead people while they're not actually dead. They're simply paralyzed, and their breathing has become so shallow that people are not perceiving it. Now, do you think if you are living in the rural areas of India or Pakistan or Nepal, in the jungle, you don't have windows, you don't have a door, do you think you're a bit mindful about the crate? You better believe you are, because you know that it exists. Of all snakes, it's the only snake that has the propensity to actually attack humans. The running theory is that there's something about human body odor that ignites its hunger. If you live in the proximity of an Indian crate, you're going to take certain precautions to protect yourself from that because you believe it to be a real enemy and you believe it to be something that will devour you or harm you or kill your children if given the opportunity. Do you really believe that the devil is your enemy? Do you believe that he's clever and that he's powerful? Do you seek to be aware of what's going on? Think just for a moment with me. Sometimes I wonder how in the world do we get from our Savior dying on a cross and the apostles living lives on the run, giving up every earthly privilege to confess the gospel to the known Mediterranean world, in most cases dying martyrs' deaths, and we go from there to the 21st century health and wealth gospel that the gospel is all about you being blessed materially and having a rich and successful life. From my perspective, that is nothing short than demonic. It is a lie which has just enough truth into, in it to make it appear biblical in the hands of a false prophet. By many people's counts, the health and wealth gospel is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. If we are not wary, what may we be prey to? In terms of the lies that the devil proffers, uh, I think I just made that word entirely up, I'm not sure, that, this, that the devil delivers, right, that we might be led astray and away from Jesus. The victory of Christ motif is very much captured in that picture of David and Goliath. Right? David defeats Goliath, this giant enemy of Israel, and what does Israel do? They leap to their feet the, the champion of the Philistines being defeated, and they race after the Philistines to defeat them. If we don't believe that our enemy, our Goliath, has been defeated by Christ, then we sit in camp, staring at one another, afraid to move out and actually be on the offensive for the gospel in the world. 
and sharing our faith and articulating it because even if it's subconscious, we live in some degree of fear that our enemy still exists. It's in the cross that he has been defeated. It's in the cross that not only has he been defeated, but the New Testament tells us that God's wisdom has mocked him. And it's out of that reality that we both be wary of him, but we also don't live in a place of abject fear. That's why the victory of Christ is so important for the church. The second view we considered was substitution. The notion that as a result of our sin, we deserve to be punished. And I told you that the victory of Christ dominated the first millennium of the church. But as you enter the Middle Ages and the Reformation, theologians begin to say, you know, there seems to be a responsibility on our part for sin. And something has to be done about God's wrath. Just defeating Satan doesn't handle God's wrath and anger towards sin. More had to be accomplished at the cross. And so you have the development of the notion that Jesus has been our substitute, that he has uh, stood in our place and taken our sin upon himself. And particularly what the substitution view highlights is uh, not simply that he's taken our sin, which is more the scapegoat view, but that he's taken our punishment. As a result of your sin, you deserve to physically die and be eternally separated from, uh, from God uh, in hell. And this does not become your story because it becomes Jesus' story. Right? When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, uh, Lord, please, may this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, I would prefer not to drink of it. Well, the cup is an ancient metaphor for wrath. And Jesus desires not, he knows that he's headed to the cross, and not only that he would die physically, but he will receive God's wrath as he takes upon himself the sin of the world. He says, if there's some other way that I can avoid actually being the subject of your wrath, you who, in, with whom I've existed in perfect unity, then I would prefer it to be so. But he knows that he goes to take that wrath. And it's not only the wrath that occurs in physical death, but our sentence is eternal separation. And so when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the acknowledgement that the Father must turn away from the Son who has taken sin upon himself as he is separated from the Father. The Trinity becomes severed in some capacity so that Jesus would stand in our place and suffer what we deserve. Now, why is this view important? On the one hand, I think it's terribly important because it gives us an appreciation for sin. You and I have a remarkable capacity to make light of our sin. Do we not? Oh, it's not such a big deal. God forgives sin. That's his business. And my sin isn't so bad because I look around me and I see people doing many uh, worse things than I'm doing, and so I am okay. But realize that every sin results in the need for a substitute. And so when you are engaged in that sin or tempted to go to that place where you know that you are engaging in sinful activity, what is it at that moment to dwell upon the screams of Christ as the nails pierce his hand? What is it to see the, uh, the dejection and the despair in his face as the father deserts him? 
What is it to know that he enters not only into death, but goes to hell on your behalf? And at that moment, do you think your sin will seem so pretty? Do you not think you will have more pause to realize that this sin in which I engage and I take lightly is one of the many sins that require the death of the Son of God? Maybe I should take it more seriously. Maybe I should wrestle against it more and work more uh, intensely at mortifying my flesh, putting it to death, the desires that I feel. Without this view, we have a very big problem. Right? If we move away from appreciating Jesus as our substitute in the atonement, that means that there hasn't been payment for sin, which means in turn that payment for sin still is on your head, which means that you, whether you acknowledge it or not, are carrying a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. What is guilt? Guilt is with the burden we carry when we know that we've done something wrong. But shame is the burden we carry when we believe that we're actually wrong in and of our being. We feel bad. Guilt is the result of doing, perceiving that we've done something bad. Shame is the, the uh, problem that we perceive ourselves to actually be bad. And both of these things are very true if Christ has not paid your penalty, if he has not been your substitute. Because as he is that substitute, your guilt is handled because your debt is paid. And your shame is handled because in Christ's death, you are being made new. You are being reborn. The born again that Nicodemus could not possibly understand. Undoubtedly, he understood it after the resurrection. This is why the notion of substitution in the atonement is so essential. This takes us to our third aspect of the cross. And that is healing. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his, <coughs> excuse me, by his wounds you have been healed. Peter, as well as Paul, will draw on this idea from the prophetic literature, which occurs prominently in Isaiah, that there will be a servant who comes, and it's by his wounds, it's by his stripes, his lashings, that you will be healed. What is the nature of that healing? We still get sick, don't we? We still suffer, do we not? But we noticed as we considered this view that while suffering in the Old Testament is often the result of sin, suffering in the New Testament is a tool in the hands of God to shape us. We sang earlier, I don't remember the whole phrase, but it, it, there's, a, there's a clause that says, at every turning. It's the notion of clay being turned on a wheel. And in every turn, there's, there's pressure. There's the application of the hand of the master in shaping the clay, and it is not always pleasant as the clay is stripped away, but what emerges is beautiful and useful. And that is now what suffering becomes in the hand of the potter, something that shapes us and yields us into something beautiful that heals not just uh, us in a physical sense, but it heals our souls. It makes us complete and prepares us for the utter completeness that comes when we uh, move towards glory. It's in this gracious healing that actually assigns purpose to the cross, right? that we look at the cross and say, how can this be the plan of God, that the Son of God would have to go and hang on a tree 
God says, no, this is my plan all along to bring redemption out of the suffering that allows us to assign purpose to all of our suffering. You see, without believing in the healing that occurs at the cross, that means that suffering that you endure is precarious. There is no purpose in it. The only one that can assign purpose to suffering is someone that can see in it and through it and to the other side of it. Only someone who can declare that even though we are headed to the cross, on the other side is resurrection. If we move away from valuing this aspect of the atonement or the cross, we have to assign our own purpose to suffering. And you, you don't have that ability. You will inevitably do it wrong. It's far beyond your pay grade. Only God can assure that somehow, through his power, there will be purpose and something good and glorious on the other side of suffering. The fourth view of the cross was the scapegoat. The scapegoat spoke of the notion that comes to us from Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, you have a picture of what we would call a scapegoat ritual. There are two goats, and on one goat, all the sins of the people are confessed, and that goat is sent into the wilderness for destruction. It symbolizes the removal of sin from the people. And we also noted that the scapegoat ritual represents a human phenomenon, which is that we all engage in scapegoating. We all live in a place where we try to make our way in this world. We imitate one another. We live out of envy and jealousy. And ultimately, we would be willing to sacrifice some victim within reach in order to relieve the tension in which we exist, in order to move beyond it, uh, if only for a time. And it's the scapegoating that's blown up, that is undermined by Jesus making himself the willing scapegoat. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. The innocent, blameless goat receives the sins of Israel. Jesus goes to the cross and receives our sins placed upon him. When we look at Jesus, we realize that he blows up the scapegoat notion because he alone in the history of the world could actually, was not only justified, but had the power to escape it. Sometimes you think about a scapegoat and you think of something like William Wallace, right? Braveheart. He goes to his death at the end and bravely shouts freedom even as they're gutting him. It's a great scene. It's a noble life. But William Wallace doesn't have the power or the opportunity to remove himself from that situation. Jesus is blameless and has every degree of power necessary to remove himself from the situation that comes upon him. He has the authority to change the course But he chooses not to. He willingly becomes the scapegoat that our sins might be placed upon him and reveals to us that no longer does one have to live in this matrix of scapegoating because he delivers himself willingly and out of that comes life. It teaches us, helps us to see two things. Number one, Jesus is the most complete human, the perfect human. 
And he doesn't live a life that is consumed by imitating others and a desire to be filled up by earthly things. He's completely content. And when I believe that I've been unified to him and that God has spared nothing on my behalf because of my union to him, then I no longer need to seek my identity and my happiness and my sense of completion in comparison to other human beings. If you are smarter than me, I don't have to be jealous. I can celebrate it. If you are prettier than me, I am happy for you. If you, your life is going better, right, great. Maybe you have wisdom to share with me. Why? Right? Because ultimately, my life is now bound up in walking with my Savior. I don't need what you possess unless Christ would have it for me. Paul understood this so well when he wrote, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Can you say that? With food and with clothing, I will be content. I can't say that. I'm not even close to being able to say that. So what does that tell me? It tells me that I'm still living in the matrix of scapegoating. I'm still jealous and envious of you, and that tension will build up in me, and I will sacrifice people here and there as I go because I don't really live out of my union with Christ. I really do not believe deep down that nothing has been spared and that I have everything that I need in him. But even as you think about what it would look like and be to live that way, can you not gasp at the freedom that would be? Can you imagine to walk through each day and never to be hindered by jealousy or envy? To never be hindered by covetousness of what another person has and to desire that for yourself? You would be one of the freest people in the entire world. We're freed from that notion of imitation because Jesus is our scapegoat. And not only are we freed from that imitation, but we're freed also to be the scapegoat on behalf of others. Right? We've all been there. And sooner or later you will be there again. Someone will be frustrated near to you. Life will not be going the way they want it to be. They will be angry. It will build up inside of them and they will lash out. And your neck may be the closest at hand and they decide to sacrifice you. That's a pretty unpleasant place to be. And I'm not saying that you should suffer injustice. I'm not saying something like you should suffer abuse. Right? But if you're in a place where you do happen to be made the scapegoat, you also now have the power and the freedom to say, I will be your scapegoat. I know that there are terrible things happening in your life. I know that there are frustrations happening. And I know that you are cutting me not of a completely sane mind and certainly not of who you are in Christ. And I will bleed for you because my Savior bled for me. And as I bleed for you, does nothing more than let the blood of the old man out. And the more blood of the old man I lose, the more the blood of my Savior flows into my veins. And the more new I become. The more I embody the sacrifice of the cross, the more I know my Savior who gives me life in the cross. These are the four views of the atonement or of the cross that we've considered. How and why they're effective and what they do for us. But closing, there's, there's one that we've neglected. Now, we've alluded to it a number of weeks, but we haven't assigned it its own Sunday because it must be informed by all four views that we've already considered. Do you know what it is? 
is that the cross is exemplary. And by exemplary, I mean that it is your example for living. It is your paradigm for life. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, obviously, Jesus is not referring to a literal cross. Otherwise, we're all failing because I did not see any parked outside the church today. What he is saying is you are called, as you participate in his kingdom in this world, to embrace, to be informed by, and to embody all the aspects of the cross. To live out of the victory of Christ, the substitution of Christ, the healing of Christ, right? And that Christ is our scapegoat. What's fascinating is these seem to have a progression, which is so often the case in redemptive history. Think for just a moment about how God's revelation progresses from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He increasingly allows humanity, particularly his people, to know more about who he is. You know a great deal more about God at the incarnation than you do in Genesis or Exodus. And you also learn more about the atonement as you progress through Christ as victor, Christ as substitute, Christ our healer, and Christ our scapegoat. You know, what aspects of the atonement are you good at celebrating? What aspects of the cross do you fail to embody? Are you quick to celebrate that, yes, your debt has been paid, you're in the clear, but fail to embody healing on behalf of others? Or fail to be the willing scapegoat on behalf of others? Uh, very recently, September 1 was the deadline to get out of North Korea. There aren't very many Americans in North Korea. In fact, the number is less than 200. But of that number, the vast majority of them are Christians. And they've been living there and laboring there for decades, really since uh, the late 1980s. They allowed a, uh, some small crusade work to be done by the Billy Graham organization. And Ruth Graham, his late wife, would actually have an ongoing relationship with North Korea. Out of that came a number of Christian NGOs. Franklin Graham's group has done work in North Korea since that time. But now everyone has to leave. And they're all very upset. And without entering the political arena whatsoever, right, of what's going on in the world, here you have a group of American believers who have sacrificed everything to bring life and to share love and to embody healing to a people that are not permitted to be proselytized in any capacity. Numbers of them have been taken into custody and their condition and whereabouts are completely unknown. And here's the really shocking thing is as they are being forced and have been forced to exit the country, so many of them are appealing to have a special status to go back in and to continue their work. That's a pretty mature understanding of the cross. For some of them, it will mean that their families will live in China and they will go back and forth between Korea and North China, or in China, to continue their ministry. That's the kind of person who says, yes, my biggest enemy has been defeated by Christ and my debt has been paid. My, my penalty has been suffered. I have been healed in my soul and my body will know destruction 
but ultimately I know eternal life with God because I've been healed in Christ. And now I'm going. I'm going to share this news and to preach this gospel and embody this cross because I have been saved by the scapegoat and now I'm willing to play a scapegoat if need be for the message to be told. And someone who not only understands the cross, but understands what motivates the cross. Why did God engage in any of this? For God so loved the world. It's his love for you, for me, for his people, for the restoration of his creation that drives him in that direction. And as you move along the views of the cross, you will both experience and be enabled to express more of that love. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for writing a story that we would never guess. We praise you that you would redeem through death, that your great rescue plan involves being hung on a tree. We marvel at your character and your revelation at the cross. We pray that you would help us to understand it in its depth and in its complexity. We ask that we would not only understand it, but that you would help us even as we come to your table this morning to pick up our crosses and to follow after you, to embody the very life that you have revealed to us, to live as truly human as you have shown us. And may we be a people in which we grow and mature so that the entire community of Rockwall and the surrounding area if anything else, we'll say of Rockwell Presbyterian Church, they are a cross-bearing church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.